Shema Israel, Adonai Lahenu, Adonai Ahat, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you'll stay up just a little bit longer, we'll now hear the scripture. Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that we love from the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. While Jesus had their attention, and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time, and expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute, he told this story. There once was a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But first he called ten servants together, gave them each a sum of money, and instructed them, operate with this until I return. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this man to rule us. When he came back bringing the authorization of his rule, he called those ten servants to whom he had given the money to find out how they had done. The first said, Master, I doubled your money. He said, Good servant, great work. Because you've been trustworthy in this small job, I'm making you governor of ten towns. The second said, Master, I made 50% profit on your money. He said, I'm putting you in charge of five towns. The next servant said, Master, here's your money, safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I know you have high standards and hate sloppiness and don't suffer fools gladly. He said, you're right, I don't suffer fools gladly and you've acted the fool. Why didn't you at least invest the money in security so I would have gotten a little interest on it? Then he said to those standing there, take the money from him and give it to the servant that doubled my stake. They said, but master, he already has double. He says, that's what I mean. Risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and end up holding the bag. As for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, clear them out of here. I don't want to see their faces around here again. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, you can have a seat. All right, another parable. Everybody take a deep breath and relax as we enter into another parable of Jesus and trust that we're going to be all right. We've been training. Our parable wrestling muscles are growing stronger. Dinah and David and Ryan have led us through some parables from Luke over the last several weeks. And they've taught us that parables are simply stories that are told to help us learn and grow and change. And while we've learned that they're just stories that are easy to remember, we've also learned they're not always so easy to understand. They confront and confound our present understanding, often presenting us with tension and paradox and unresolved ideas. Let me give you an example that I think might, might clear this up. There are two types of parables. Those that we think we have mastered, but really haven't. That's it. Were y'all expecting something else? That's all I got. Sorry for that joke. If you missed it, don't worry. It's not you. It's me. Frederick Buechner actually said that parables are like jokes. He said these words. He wrote that Jesus spoke many of these parables as a kind of sad and holy joke. And that may be part of why he seemed reluctant to explain them. Because if you have to explain a joke, you might as well save your breath. 
We get that. That makes sense. Because what we have been learning is that parables aren't meant to be explained away. They don't exist to be mastered and codified and turned into rules. Parables are an invitation to get in the game, to participate, to join in. Parables are playgrounds upon which we play. Trails that we follow and explore. Wide open dance floors upon which we work on our moves. Or, for those of us who prefer a more clampet-like metaphor, parables are like swimming holes into which we can dive and explore the depths. Parables mess with our perspectives. And our perspective, or how we see things, shapes how we show up. Now, with an introduction like that, how could you not want to dive into another parable this morning? I mean, that's why all of you got up and got dressed and came here this morning, right? To have your perspective messed with? Okay, don't worry. We'll be fine. We're in this together. We're following a rabbi that loves us, so let's do this together. Let's jump into the parable that we just heard in Luke 19. Some people call this parable the parable of the ten minas. You may have heard it referred to as the parable of investment or This one, which is tough, the parable of the greedy king. Ouch. I'm going to ask you to set all of those titles aside for a little while. Because those titles represent someone else's perspective. The truth is, when we give something a title, we're essentially trying to sum up what we think it's about. So the titles that we find associated with this parable, they may even show up in bold print in our Bibles are someone else's attempt to define and summarize what this parable is about. Those titles are someone else's perspective, how they see things and how they show up. It's not that other people's perspectives aren't helpful. They are. In fact, they're crucial. We can't do this alone. But if we want to let this parable mess with our perspective, confront how we see things, then that's where we need to start, with us, not with someone else. So let's leave those titles and anything else we think we already know about this parable on the sidelines for just a little bit and look at this story with fresh eyes. The first thing that I noticed is that much of this story sounds like the parable recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. We had a video this morning that played when the service started that was actually reading that parable from the Gospel of Matthew. It comes from the 25th chapter of Matthew. And there Jesus tells a story about a man who comes to three of his servants and gives them ridiculous amounts of wealth for no reason and then leaves. After a long time passes, the man returns to his servants to see what they've done with the wealth they received. The first two servants reveal that they've turned a great profit, produced more wealth than they were given, and the man is thrilled. He commends them and says things like, good work. From now on, be my partner. Share in my joy. The third servant comes and returns the original gift to the man saying, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you. So I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. And just like what we heard in Luke, in Matthew, the man is not happy. He responds saying, that's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with bankers 
where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Now, all of that sounds strikingly similar to the parable of Luke 19. In Luke 19, a nobleman or someone of royalty gives ridiculous sums of money to his servants before leaving and then returning after a long time to see and hear what they've done in his absence. And the results are identical. But there are some differences in the two stories. The parable in Matthew is simply about a man that leaves and comes back, and there's nothing about that man being noble or descended from royalty. The parable in Luke 19 has this interwoven narrative about a would-be king who needs to go back to headquarters to get authorization for his kingship. And after he gives the money to his servants and leaves, he is followed by some of his soon-to-be subjects who go to headquarters and protest his authority. It's like a whole second story that seems to distract from the first story about gifts of great wealth and what the servants do with it. Theologian and pastor Fred Craddock notes that many scholars question whether the second narrative about the would-be king and his authority and his subjects is actually even a parable because it is eerily similar to events that actually happened. During the first and second centuries, the times when Jesus and his disciples, as well as Luke and his original audience, would have lived, no one got to serve as a ruler within the Roman Empire without Rome's permission. Those that wanted to rule would petition the Roman governor for the right to rule. King Herod the Great, the king of Judea, when Jesus was born, did just that. And after he died, his sons Antipas and Archelaus did the same thing. They were all would-be kings who had to make trips to Rome, back to headquarters, to get authorization for their kingship. When Archelaus made his trip back to Rome to get authority, a group of Jewish subjects from Judea followed him there. Can we guess why? To protest. To say, we don't want this guy to be our ruler. The first century audience of Luke's gospel would have made that connection. They would have connected those dots. They would have heard the beginning of the story that goes, there once was a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. And immediately thought of Archelaus and Antipas and Herod the Great and all the other corrupt rulers Rome had placed over their lives. That was part of their perspective. That was how they saw things. That would have definitely shaped how they showed up. But what does that story, the one about a would-be king, have to do with the other story, the one about giving massive amounts of wealth to servants and then leaving and then returning one day to see what they did with it? Why are these stories intertwined in Luke? Matthew only tells one story. Why does Luke give us two stories for the price of one? Perhaps if we're going to wrestle with that question, we need to swim around a bit in the second story, the one about ridiculous wealth given to servants. The first thing that I noticed is that the story begins with unmerited favor. The nobleman, the would-be king, who has a great fortune, is going away for a while, so he entrusts his wealth to his servants, like you do. 
No. That's not what we do. We entrust our fortune, our estates, to our heirs, our children, our relatives. And if there's none of those, then we choose our best managers or our closest friends, our confidants, those whom we know we can trust. What owner of a business is going to leave with no known return date and give the keys and the bank accounts and the passwords to the part-time minimum wage worker that sweeps up the place? No one. But that's what happens here. The king shares his fortune with the lowest of the low. Not his children, not his family, not his best managers, but his servants at the bottom of the pile. It's undeserved, unmerited favor. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous. A little side note about parables. The outrageousness of the story, the ridiculousness of it, is usually a clue. It points to the reality that there's something else going on. That there is more to the story than the simple surface explanations to which we normally run. This would-be king is absurd. There is no reason for him to give his wealth to these servants. By his own words to the third servant at the end of the parable, he could have just put his money in some sort of banking system and left. He could have earned a little interest on it, as he says to the third servant. But he doesn't do that. He rolls the dice on servants. And it is actually like he's gambling, risking it all on the lowest of the low. Now, a lot of us get caught up in which servants get the most and make the most, and we're looking for a way to rank the servants and their accomplishments and their rewards and their risk. Here's the problem with that. If we do that, we miss the one who takes the greatest risk. It's not the servants. It's the man who would be king. To be sure, the first and second servants do risk something in order to make what they do, but they were playing with house money. It wasn't their wealth. The would-be king, on the other hand, risks it all. It's his wealth. It's as if he says, here's everything I have. Do something with it. I'm out. You've done nothing to deserve this, and I have no reason to trust you with this, but I invite you to participate in my wealth. See you later. There is risk baked into the whole thing, right from the very beginning. And this would-be king is not only fine with risk, he celebrates it. When he comes home and two servants have risked his wealth in order to create more, he celebrates it and rewards it with an invitation to even more. All of that ridiculousness, I think, might be trying to communicate a couple of truths about risk. First, I think this story is telling us that risk is inherent. It's just part of the equation from Jump Street. The would-be king starts this thing off with a huge risk that he doesn't have to take. Second, I think this story offers an invitation and an expectation to participate in the risk. It's all the would-be king seems to care about. He doesn't seem to care about what relative amounts are risked or gained, only that the first two servants participated in the risk and the third does not. Now, here's where I get tripped up. If the risk is baked in from the beginning, 
meaning the servants can't escape it. And there's an invitation and expectation to participate. Then there will necessarily be something else that's part of this story. Something that unsettles me. Something I usually don't like much unless I'm the one doing it. Judgment. Judgment's a part of this story, and it bothers me. But I know it's true. I know it belongs. I know that if there's an invitation and an expectation, then there must also be an evaluation. There must be a judgment of whether or not the invitation was accepted, whether or not the expectation was met. There must be a time when the would-be king returns to judge what has transpired in his absence. The truth is we can't talk about this parable without talking about judgment. Just like risk, judgment is baked into the whole thing right from the beginning. But remember, we're in a parable, not a factual report. This is not an allegory. This is an analogy. This is a story that is meant to confront and confound our perspectives. This is supposed to mess with how we see things. So I have to ask, what is my perspective on judgment? How do I see it? For a lot of us, the way we see judgment is as something that happens to us later when we die. For many of us, the only thing that comes to mind when we hear the word judgment in a church setting are matters of heaven and hell. But that's not what's at stake in this story. The judgment of the would-be king toward the third servant is not reserved for later when the servant dies, and it doesn't have anything to do with some sort of trip to paradise. In this story, judgment is a present reality. It's something that happens now. This story proposes that the choices the servants make to participate, to get in the game, to live into the invitation and expectation of getting neck deep in the multiplication of the would-be king's wealth have real consequences right here, right now. Think about it this way. The third servant essentially tells the would-be king, I know you're harsh and cruel, so I don't want to risk angering you by losing your money. What? Where does that conclusion come from? What is he talking about? This is a man who gave undeserved wealth to the lowest of the low. This is someone who celebrates his servant's participation with joy and favor. What is harsh about that? Where's the cruelty? This would-be king is the kind of ruler who gives his servants massive amounts of money with apparently very few guidelines about what to do with it, and leaves. And then when he does come home, all he wants is for his servants to share in even more of his kingdom. The truth is, that third servant fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the man who would be king. The third servant refuses to believe that this man is really like what he seems to be like. It's almost as if this story is asking, 
how do you see the man who would be king? Which, if we remember, might be a question that that other story asked us as well. Remember that first story, the intertwined narrative, the one about a nobleman who needed to go back to headquarters to get permission to rule? A man that would be king whose subjects rejected and protested his authority? It, too, seems to pose the question, how do you see the man who would be king? These intertwined stories confront their listeners with that question and ask, what's your perspective? How do you see things? How are you going to show up? Luke's first century audience had plenty of answers for that question. They usually saw the man who would be king as a lackey or a stooge of Rome, as someone who needed permission from Caesar, who claimed to be God on earth, in order to rule. They saw the would-be kings as hated oppressors, as harsh rulers with high standards, who hated sloppiness and didn't suffer fools. And that's just the descriptions of the would-be kings that they knew under Rome. The king they wanted would be nothing like that. The king they were looking for would be someone who would triumph over Rome, crush their oppressors, and bring judgment against all of their enemies. A king that would establish the long-oppressed tribe of Israel on the top of the pyramid. Now, in the midst of that consciousness, in the middle of all those questions and perspectives, Jesus tells a story. Two stories, really. Two for the price of one. And they both ask the question, how do you see the man who would be king? Our perspective, how we see things, shapes how we show up. One last observation. When Jesus tells this parable, he's heading to Jerusalem. The verse immediately following this parable says, after saying these things, Jesus headed straight up to Jerusalem. Don't miss that. Don't miss the timing. When Jesus tells these intertwined stories, when his followers are confronted with the question, how do you see the man who would be king? He has set his sights on Jerusalem and all that awaits him there. He's headed to the holy city where some will hail his triumphant entry as the king who will crush Rome. He's headed to headquarters, where he'll be brought before Rome on the question of his authority to rule. He's headed to a place where a tribunal of Jews will follow him there to protest his kingship and declare, we don't want him. He's headed not to the top of the pyramid, but to a shameful death among criminals, and he knows it. How's that for a king? This king knows that his presence among his disciples is coming to an end. This king knows that he will soon be absent. And so, he tells them a haunting story about participating in the king's wealth even when the king is not there. A story about receiving 
unmerited favor. A story about staying connected to the invitation and expectation, the flow of an outrageous abundance. Frederick Beekner's right. It is a sad and holy joke. Can I even recognize a king that looks and lives and loves like that? Or will I just settle for the stories I tell myself about a harsh and cruel ruler who has high standards and hates sloppiness and doesn't suffer fools? Can I recognize a man who would be king that is unlike the kings that I am used to? A king who doesn't use his power to crush his oppressors, but instead shares it with the least of these in an invitation to participate in his joy. A king who doesn't cast out those that reject him, but declares, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know about you, but that messes with my perspective. It has the potential to change how I see things and how I show up. I want to live like I'm in on the holy joke. I want to participate in the gift. I want to live into the flow of the ridiculous abundance. So Luke 19. Two parables for the price of one. What's our perspective going to be? How do we see this parable? Is it just sanctified motivational speaking that warns us not to anger the king and to do something or else we're going to get judged? Or is it a mirror that forces us to look at how we see the king and, how, and ask us how we're going to live in his absence? And speaking of the king, what's our perspective? How do we see the king? Is he just one more easily angered, demanding taskmaster and gatekeeper that measures our worthiness? Or is he the one who has all authority already? shares all that he has and lays down his life for the least, the last, and the lost. If you're not sure, it's okay. Just keep coming back because we have a story to tell you.